you know, my alarm is set for 5.30 every morning, but it hardly ever goes off because I wake up before it. It's just the way it rolls. For me, 5.30 is the latest because I got to get going with the Lord and spend some time with him and get on with the day. Last Friday night, Karen and I were shamelessly partying and we were up really late. We, it was her birthday. And we were shamelessly partying. Now for, for us, shamelessly partying means, means, means watching, binge watching three episodes of Dark or whatever BBC series we're in right now. That's what shamelessly partying for is, let's watch one more. <laughs> it's exhausting. So I went to bed late Friday night, and I wanted to make sure 5.30 was still going to wake me up. So I'm messing around with the clock, just making sure as I'm falling into bed at some terrible hour, like 10.45 or something like that, you know. Yeah. And so uh, went to sleep, did the normal wake up, go to sleep, wake up, go to sleep, wake up, go to sleep thing that a lot of us are doing, right? Yep. I was in some kind of dream. I don't exactly remember the dream, but I heard the alarm go off. Oh, oh it's 5.30. Tunk. All right. Said 5.30. It's alarming me. I got up. Oh, and I went and turned the coffee pot on and got my Bible out and started my, my praying, you know, drinking coffee and doing the thing that I like to do when I get up. And I was sitting there in the chair, one of the chairs I sit in when I'm not walking out my prayer, and I look up at the clock in the living room, and it said 4.15. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I just put a battery in that clock. I must, it must have been a bad battery. And so I just kept doing my thing, walking around, praying, drinking my coffee, and I kind of have this circuit that I do in prayer where I walk through the kitchen, and, uh, and I walked by the oven, and it said 422. And I thought, well, the oven doesn't even have a battery. I wonder what time it is. And I checked my phone, and it was 422. So I just continued on figuring, well, I know what must have happened. I must have, I must have been fooling around with the clock. Said it because it's an old timey clock, you know, with the buttons on the top. You know, a lot of you young people are looking at me saying, What's an alarm clock? <laughs> you got your phone device waking you up, and it's got the buttons on the top. And so when I pressed it, I must have pressed the hour button, and it advanced at two hours. So when I was going to sleep at 10:45, it probably said 12:45, but I didn't see that. But when the alarm went off in what that clock thought was 5.30, it was actually 3.30. But I didn't know that. I woke up. I did my thing. Drank my coffee. Sang my songs. Prayed my prayers. And then suddenly became aware that it was not the time I thought it was. The time is is relative in one sense, but it's absolute in another. No matter how 
I might have liked to say, well, it's not really 4.30 now. It's 6.30 now. It would not have been true. No matter how passionately I might have said, oh, no, in my world, it's 6.30 now. The reality is, no matter how much I believed that, it was not true. There was an absolute reality to the time, and I was wrong about it. Karen and I are on different shifts. And so for her, she'll freely tell you she would love it if the day would run from 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. That would be, who, who can relate, huh? Yeah. And so it's very important to me that she stay asleep when I get up for me to do my thing. I started this when the kids were home, and before they went to school, I did my thing before they got up. That's how I got in this pattern. And so once I realized what time it was, actually, I heard some commotion in the bedroom. And I thought, no, Lord. <laughs> and then it settled back down, and I thought, thank you, Jesus. Continued on. And... Uh, at 8 o'clock that morning, Saturday morning, yesterday morning, she comes busting out of the bedroom going, how did I sleep till 10? <laughs> I said, it's 8, honey. <laughs> because the same false indicator was telling her the wrong information, and she was believing it. We've been looking at Acts chapter 2 in the past few weeks, checking, kind of checking the clock. What, what's the church really supposed to be, no matter what people say it might be? We've been using Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 as kind of the thumbprint of God on the church to ask God, what's your church supposed to look like? You tell us what time it really is, God. You tell us, Lord, what the church is meant to look like. Because I believe that the church today is in a deep identity crisis. Doesn't really know who she is. Doesn't know what time it is. And we need to examine this objective standard from the Bible, which is the correct clock, to see what God's church is meant to be. And there in that passage, we read they devoted themselves. This is the early church and a description of God's first church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So thus far we've noticed that there are two distinctive qualities in this series, Reclaiming Our Identity, two distinctive qualities regarding the thumbprint of God on his church. And first, we noticed that they were, they were, wor they were worshiping people. Verse 47 says they were praising God that they lived this life that was bowed down to God, and when they came together, they joyfully, triumphantly, and intimately worshiped God. 
Uh, the second thing we noticed is that they were a praying people. Uh, they said they were devoted to prayer. We looked at that, and Christian built on that a little bit last week. And uh, the, they were devoted to this prayer, and there are so many examples, aren't there, in the book of Acts where that's exactly what they were doing. We kept finding them gathered together for prayer. And there's so much teaching in the other books of the New Testament that call us to pray without ceasing, that call us, teach us how to pray. And today, I want, I want you to look at another dimension of the first century church and that they were a people who were surrendered to the word of God as the absolute and uncompromised truth. Let's, let's invite the Lord to come and do that for us. Lord, I'm so grateful for these men and women and young people who have come into this room right now. I believe it's by your will, by your design, by your desire that the very likes of us are gathered together now. And so, Lord, this, this church was not my church. When I woke up, it won't be when I go to bed. It's your church. And so, would you remove me from this equation and simply use me to bear your word to the people you love so much? In Jesus' name, amen. So, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says that the people of the first century church were a devoted people. It says they were devoted to four things, and we'll get to all of them eventually. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayer. Um, the result of this devotion of this first century church, really three things. There was, first of all, a powerful, miraculous presence of the Holy Spirit. So because they were devoted to those things, here's how God responds. Everyone was filled with awe, verse 43, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I like that description of church, don't you? Come on. Church, don't you love that? The thought that many wonders and miraculous signs would be the thing that they frequently saw, regularly saw, and it came as a result of their radical devotion to these four things. Um, secondly, they had a joyous and loving sense of dynamic community. If you look at verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I love this description of the fellowship, don't you? Of the body. And you know, we see some of that in our fellowship. And I've witnessed some of that and been part of some of that. I think it would just be so cool if, if people, people said that about us. That those people, they just really love each other. They just really go the distance. They enjoy each other. And, um, and, and that that would be a description of our church. I think the third thing that came as a result of these uh, four devotions is an amazingly powerful expression of evangelism. If you look at the very last line in the passage, it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That, that God was, this was God's response to their devotion to these four things. Did you get the, the power of the Lord? You have a dynamic community, and people are just getting saved like crazy. On your heart somewhere is somebody that you want to see come to the Lord. I know that that's true. Maybe many people in your world, you want to see them come to the Lord, find Christ. And, uh, and we need to be about the whole business of intentional evangelism. And yet when we look at this passage, you see that it just flowed as a result of this community that God had created in response to their devotion to these four things. I think that's pretty, pretty miraculous. So these realities that are up on the screen now, uh, 
were brought about by the early believers' radical devotion to those four things. And I think they can come about again because we've seen incidents of that kind of church throughout history. And we've even dipped our toe, haven't we, in the water of that same church here. Judy Schrader, have we not, have we not seen moments in our history together where there was just a river of life and, and we, we could have for some brief time been, been described as that church. And as I think back, we were in radical devotion to those very four same priorities. It can happen again. And uh, I, I want you to especially focus this morning on the fact that they, these early believers were noticeably devoted to something called the apostles' teaching. Now, you might be brand new here, and you might be brand new to the Lord, and you may be reading the Bible for the first time, and you are so welcome here, and we're so glad that you're here. And so I'm just going to take a moment to tell you what the apostles' teaching would have referred to. So the apostles, I know some of these church terms can get kind of confusing. The apostles are functionally the 12 disciples who followed Jesus when he was on the earth, you know, Peter and James and John and Andrew and those guys, 12 of them, except for one who was Judas, who was replaced by someone else, and then later on came another apostle called Paul, the Apostle Paul. So these are the principal followers of Jesus who were entrusted with the church and entrusted, filled with the Holy Spirit to bring the teaching, the standard of righteousness to the world. Remember, there's no Bible for them to say, turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13, and I'll tell you about love, because it hadn't been written yet, and God was using these apostles to bring the very teaching of God in, in they were graced in this special way to bring it, and they were used in this special way so that the books of the Bible that we have in the New Testament, the majority of them were written by these apostles. And because they were held by God to bring the teaching. Now, just to confuse those of you who are newer a little more, the letters in the New Testament we call epistles. And that's not an apostle. And I know it's like, why do you do that? I don't know. So the epistles were written by the apostles, okay? I know, it's messed up. It's messed up. But I just wanted to clarify that when we see that this first century church was devoted, they said they were devoted, they clung to, we looked at that word devoted before in the prayer message, they clung to the apostles' teaching. It was what God was saying through them, the teaching to this brand new church, the letters that were written to these churches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which caused them to become the scripture that we hold now to be the absolute truth. Does that make sense? Say yes, I can start the whole thing again. Okay. So the dynamic equivalent of the apostles' teaching that we read in this passage here is the New Testament. It's the New Testament. So when we say they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, since those same apostles are not here, God left with every bit the same power and presence of the Holy Spirit on their teaching, he left that to us in the form of the New Testament. And so a church today that says we want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching is saying 
we want to be devoted to the Word of God. We want to cling to the Word of God as the absolute truth. And are we not so blessed today to have the Bible at our disposal everywhere we go? We don't even have to carry a book anymore. We just flip out our phone and, well, what translation would you like? What language would you like? Are we not so, beloved, are we not so blessed to never be but an instant away from our Bibles? It's amazing to me. And this is the apostles' teaching. And so our devotion to the apostles' teaching is our devotion to the Bible as the absolute truth of God. So what does it mean today? Here we are, you know, we're living now. So what does it mean today to be devoted to the Bible? Well, I think it means three things. First, that you read it. Can I just let that ferment a little bit here? That you read it. How can, a, how can a person say, I'm a Christian who's devoted to the Bible, who longs for that church who doesn't read it? Brothers, you cannot say you're devoted to your wife and not talk to her. Right? You cannot say you're devoted to golf and not play it. You, you cannot say you are devoted to the Bible as the absolute standard of God's righteousness and not read it. This makes total sense, doesn't it? And it's making some of you really uncomfortable right now. If we want this church, we have to, we have to gain these devotions. Devotion to the word of God is to read it I exhort you not only to read it, but to memorize it. You can memorize scripture. Raise your hand if you can say the Pledge of Allegiance from memory. Glad not yet. I think you're just not playing today, aren't you? You're not. I, I love you, man, but you're not, I'm, you're not gonna get me to raise my hand. <laughs> there, okay. We can memorize. Is it harder the older we get? Of course. But I continue to commit scripture to memory. Because it's there, because it's in my subconscious, because it drives me, it guides me, it comes to me when I need it. We can do this. You may have to watch only two episodes of Downton Abbey in a row and set that other hour to memorize a verse. But how can we say we are devoted to the word of God and yet not read it? I think the second thing, if you're devoted, is that you discuss it with others in order to apply it. You just talk about it. You know, Jesus never permitted his disciples to go it alone, ever that there is no provision in the New Testament for living your Christian life solo. We are called to be brothers and sisters, discussing the word of God. <laughs> he says they, they came together every day. They met in the temple courts. And 
What were they talking about? The Browns? They were talking about the Word. They were talking about the Word of God. You know, our small groups here at this church are meant to come together so we can talk about the Word of God. In talking about the Word of God, we can bring relevant application to our own lives that we would never come up with on our own. This that I'm doing for you, God bless you for coming. I'm happy to do it. It's not enough. It's not enough. Get face to face, heart to heart, and we're devoted to the word of God. And then third, I think if you're devoted to the word of God, then you radically surrender to what it says. You're surrendered to it. Anybody think of part of the Bible that they don't particularly care for? I can. But I have to be surrendered to it. This is what the Bible says. It is the objective standard of righteousness and sin and absolute truth. If we don't use the Bible as the objective standard for what is righteousness and what is sin, then we're making up our own God. So we have to surrender to it. And I think the American church of today does not resemble the church of Acts largely because we are refusing to allow God by his word alone to clearly define what is sin. We act as though we're in some kind of negotiation process with the Lord. Yeah, you know, I know it says that about adultery, but come on, Lord, do you see what I have to put up with? I know it's, I know Jesus said that if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he commits adultery, but we got pornography now, Lord. It's how I cope with my stress. I know the Bible says there are really only three or four provisions for biblical divorce, but he was a real jerk. And we seem to continue to just try to negotiate with God as to what is sin. I mean, he says it, boom, and we go, yeah, I hear, I hear what you're saying, Lord, I'll give you that. But, I know what you're saying, I need to be generous. I need to hold my stuff with a loose hand. I know, Lord, you said that a man's life is not, does not consist of the abundance of possessions. I know that, Lord, but I live in America. I got a raise. I know your word says, let no unwholesome communication proceed out of thy mouth, but only that which is good for the edification of others, that it may minister grace unto its hearers. I know. It's just a problem I have. It's who I am. Tom Wired. And I feel like America's in some kind of big negotiation with God about what sin is. And we're trying to accommodate a culture with it. Until we allow the scriptures to define sin and righteousness, 
then we will never be able to have the devotion to the word of God that will result in that kind of a church. It says they were devoted to the word of God, not in negotiation with God about its veracity, its truthfulness. He's just said it's, we're just negotiating, is what we're saying. And I think as a culture that prides its prides itself on its value for independence, we have in many ways removed ourselves from the biblical definitions of sin and have endeavored to redefine sin according to our own relative fancies. And as we do this, we make ourselves a God unto ourselves and become completely unsurrendered to what the actual God has actually said. You know, that church, they enjoyed the presence of God. I cannot imagine, I should should not speak for God. This is, I'm hypothesizing. I cannot imagine anything that would inhibit the Lord's presence more than an unsurrendered, rebellious church that does not accept God's own definition of sin. I I cannot imagine What could hold the Lord back from moving in this way as he did in Acts chapter 2? More than that rebellion against the clearly stated word of God. Beloved, there are parts of it that are tough. I get it. It has to start here. Imagine you're a a high school football coach. Just put yourself. Men, women, you're you're a high school football coach. And you're doing the thing, you know, you're working with your players, and you're running your plays, and you're getting ready for the games, and you're winning some, and you're losing some, and you always want to be a better coach. You, you with me so far? And suppose you get a, a text from Coach Ryan Day. Does anybody know who that is? Does everybody know who that is? Somebody tell Lisa who that is. Pretty sure he's the head coach of the, of the Ohio State. Sorry, man, oh man, almost didn't say the right, did I? Holy mackerel, you people are out of control. So supposing, you know, you're this high school football coach, win and lose or something, you're trying to figure it out, and Coach Ryan Day calls you and says, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to come over and work with your program a little. Uh, and he says, I'd like to bring some people. Maybe Fields will come. Maybe Olave will come. Maybe Chris Woods will come. Maybe Dobbins will come. Maybe these guys will come. Yeah, thanks, Val. These are important players. Yeah, just keep, keep, keep her in the illustration, okay? These are all really big deal players, okay? And I'd like to bring them uh, just to work out with your players. And you're like... Of course, right? So they come to one of your practices, and it's so amazing. The players are all excited about their coming, and as soon as they come, they start saying, well, do this, do that. And you as the high school coach steps up and says, well, time out here, coach. We do things a little differently here. We have found it much easier to play 15 players on offense And we find it much easier, better for us, in our context, with all due respect, coach, to go six downs in 10 yards. That's a thing, Lisa. It's normally four. You know that part. Okay. 
And you just push back and say, I know what your rules are, but these are our rules. How long do you think those people are going to stick around? Of course not. See, the presence of God is conditioned on a people who are devoted to his word, who are surrendered to his word. And we cannot accept the Bible's definition of salvation and reject its definitions of sin. We cannot accept John 3.16. Say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's a good verse, isn't it? Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that a great verse? Oh, what about Revelation 3, 20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I love that verse, don't you? And we cherish those verses. We cannot accept what the Bible says about salvation and not also accept what it says about sin. No, we're not going to be a church that targets certain sins here because you might be a person who's under a lot of conviction right now. Maybe you're caught up in some sexually immoral lifestyle. You might be here and you might be right now just feeling the weight of it. You might be a person who is embezzling something from your place of employment. Some of you might just be under, under tremendous conviction right now about your pornography addiction or your, your secret drug addiction. You, you might just be under complete conviction about that, but I just want to tell you that we will not target sins because... Your sins are no worse than mine. And I thank God that my life is not characterized by things that it once was. Thank God. But I am still a man of pride, a man who needs to work daily to keep my own ambition in check, a man who reacts at things rather than responds to things. And these make me as difficult to use to God as any other sin. So we're not going to be a church that targets any particular sin, but I have to say, sin is sin is sin as characterized by the word of God. We cannot accommodate culture. We cannot fix the problems of our culture by changing the Bible. And I also want to tell you that whatever your sin is, you couldn't possibly have a sin that would cause me not to love you. I still love you. I love you. But the sin is the part that we want to acknowledge as sin and not accommodate in our lives, repent of, give to God, and say your word is true. To surrender to his word. 
When we surrender to God's definitions of sin, when we acknowledge it in our own lives, then we can experience the renewing presence of the Holy Spirit and we make a way for him to come and move among us. As we resist it, he will resist us. So my, my call to you this morning is just to take what you know about the Bible and first of all say, I, I want to commit myself to knowing more. I want to be devoted to God's word. I want to read it. There's no, no reason why I can't read it for a few minutes every day. I'll, some of it I get, I'll understand. Some of it I don't. If you've never started, start in the book of Mark. Start in the book of John, maybe one of those gospel things. If you ask pretty much anybody sitting around you, they can, they can likely help you get started. But you're going to start reading. Don't worry about the parts you don't understand. Embrace the parts you do. And that you're going to surrender to it. You're going to surrender to it. That doesn't fix everything. By saying, I now recognize that my sin is sin because of the Bible, <laughs> doesn't make it go away. But it starts. It's where it begins. It's where it begins. And just say, I surrender to God and say, okay, I'll do it. If you say go, I will go. If you say stay, I'll stay. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I say? That's a fair question. We're never going to be perfect in this lifetime. That is really not our goal. The goal is to be humbly penitent in order to give room for the Holy Spirit to continue perfecting us in a thing called sanctification. Okay. And also, just in closing, I also want to remind you of this, that this isn't just about you. When I got up accidentally at 3.30, I affected my world. Your position on the Bible is not just about you. Your devotion or lack of it is not just about you. It's about the people around you. Would you join me, beloved, in committing yourself to the word of God as the word of God? Just repenting with me of, our, of the church's desire to bend it, reshape it, reinterpret it in ways that is just more accommodating to the sin of our culture. Would you join me in that repentance? Would you join me in a new devotion to the word of God? Lord, we bow before you and your word. Forgive us, Lord, in the ways that we have neglected your word, ignored your word, reinterpreted or reshaped your word to accommodate ourselves, Lord. We know that your word is truth and it leads to life. And so would you bring all of us into a place of radical surrender to the truth of your word and radical obedience to what it says to us. Lord, we thank you that you love sinners, that you did demonstrate your own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we receive that atonement through the blood of Christ and the cross of Jesus, and in so doing, we repent of our sin, Lord, and we look to you. And we say, if you say it's sin, then it's sin. 
And we ask you to come now in the power of your Holy Spirit and sanctify us that we could live and walk this out in a way that brings you glory. Come, Lord. Church, will you stand with me, please? And I'd like to ask for some of our prayer ministry people to come off to the sides over here and just be ready to pray for people who would need prayer about anything. And if you're a person here today who says, I need prayer for this, I need prayer for that, you can just come up to these people and they'll ask you what you're praying for and they'll be happy to pray with you. And it could be anything. I'd also like to open up this place up here that if you're just feeling like, you know, I want to recommit myself to the Word of God as the Word of God, that you just come up here, stand with me, and we'll just stand here and worship the Lord from this close place and just say, God, I, I want to recommit myself to the Word of God as the Word of God.